Hi, it's Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Tuesday, the 28th of February, 2012, and our special guest is David Weinberger. David, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Really delightful. David's book is too big to know, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. The Future of Education is sponsored by my Web 2.0 Labs project, and we get support from Blackboard Collaborate allowing us to use this room. Thanks to Blackboard. Do be sure to check on the ISTE and Q Unplugged events if you're going to either conference. Lots of fun at both. 50-year anniversaries for these events at both conferences as well. Uh, ISTE has the really fun all-day Unconference, which has been previously called EduBloggerCon, now being called Social EdCon, and lots more, including the Bloggers Cafe um, and ISTE Live. Q, Q is actually going to mirror a number of these events, so if you're going to be in Palm Springs for Q, can't wait to see you. Classroom 2.0 is also celebrating its fifth anniversary. We reached 64,000 members last week, which was a lot of fun. Uh, please check on a couple of projects we're working on. One is uh, called Ed Incubator. We're helping PBS NewsHour develop a cadre of teachers to help them with their journalism projects for students. Also, Classroom 2.0, the book. Uh, we are accepting contributions right now. Every chapter, every contribution will get published, at least online, and then we'll be selecting some number for the actual book. So please go to classroom20.com. We have some virtual conferences coming up, really a lot of fun. Uh, we're going to do the Classroom 2.0 fifth anniversary celebration. It looks like it may now be in conjunction with Discovery Educators in April, and it will be calling it the Social Learning Summit. Uh, the Gaming and Education Conference, we're probably going to have to change the date of that, but that is coming up, as well as the Alternate Education Conference. Library 2.012, the future of libraries, October 3rd through the 5th and the Global Education Conference November 12th through the 16th. If you haven't attended one of these thousand attendee virtual conferences, they are a blast. So please stay tuned. Joining any of the networks, Classroom 2.0, Future of Education, um, will keep you informed, library20.com. Coming up on the Future of Education, uh, I have a couple of weeks of conference travel, but when I'm back, I have a conversation with Mimi Ito. Kathy Davidson comes on to talk about her book, Now You See It. David Warlock will be on. I don't think I've ever had David on the show, and I'm really delighted he's coming on. And he and I have really connected on this idea of the individual worth of each student. And this is being kind of a narrative piece. Um, the idea that uh, no parent should accept the idea that their child is defective. Anyway, lots of fun. We're going to have a good conversation. I think Alec Koros is going to talk about social learning. Uh, Dick Gale on Appreciative Inquiry and Positive Deviance. Howard Reingold comes on to talk about his new book, NetSmart. Uh, anyway, there's lots more on this list. Um, added today, David Preston and then uh, Marcia Connor on her book on social learning. So lots of fun. If you've missed the Future of Education interview, they are all recorded in full Luminate Collaborate versions and MP3. We heard from Dennis Litke last week. And boy, if you really are interested in kind of um, authentic learning in a what is becoming a more accepted structure, you need to learn about big picture uh, schools. Uh, Alan Blankstein talked to us about the answers in the room and the wisdom uh, at local levels may actually come up tonight. Lorette Lynn talked about uh, homeschooling, unschooling, and the like. Anyway, over 250 shows, all up in recorded version. Hope there's something of interest to you there. Now we get some fun here. We're going to give you all permissions to
indicate where you're listening from. To the left of the map, you should see some icons now. You're looking for the second one down, which is the star. And you double click on that and then click on the map. And feel free to shout out in the chat as well where you are, the time, the temperature. I'm in Park City, Utah, and we are finally getting good snow. So hopefully spring doesn't come too quickly. Thomas, glad to have you here from Guam, Australia, Denver, Phoenix, Melbourne, Maryland. Oi, Brazil, glad to have you here. Bill from Manila, thanks, Bill. What a lot of fun. What a good group. Made all the better by having David with us tonight. David, uh, I have to tell you, this book was a mind-bender for me. I really enjoyed it. Well, um, thank you. Why don't we just stop right there? It's been great. <laughs> Go buy the book. So uh, give us a little bit of background. How does, how does Too Big to Know fit within the context of your own thought progression? Um, you know, I own Clue Train Manifesto, uh, everything is miscellaneous. Um, what's brought you to this point? And um, can you tell us a little bit more sort of about the, the progression? Um, well, the, the progression, I think, is too, too strong a word. Um, my long ago background, now entirely forgotten, so don't hold me responsible for it, is in philosophy and in Western philosophy, which is you know, what, I, what I studied. Um, the, the question of knowledge is fundamental and persistent largely because philosophy started out by defining itself as the study of knowledge. Knowledge was the class of belief that philosophy took as its subject. And of course, over the you know, next 2,500 years, it, it uh, picked up a few other topics, but knowledge has persisted. So I sort of have an interest um, in that, uh, going back that far. And to a large degree for me, it was the question of the damage that our traditional notion of knowledge does to our understanding of what it is to be a human in a world that is well, I have, sorry, I don't mean to plug here, but in the world, it's too big to know. I mean, it's just is really beyond our capacity to know. Um, but that's not why I started writing this book. I actually started writing this book as a relatively easy and uh, um, one hoped wildly popular business book about expertise. Um, in fact, that's how that, what the the quite extensive outline that I sold to BASIC, my publisher, was about business expertise. And about three months in, um, I called my editor, very excellent editor, and said, um, you know, it's just it's not turning out, even though I gave you quite an extensive chapter outline, uh, it took me a long time to do, uh, it's not, it doesn't want to be that book. It keeps trying, I uh, keep being pulled into um, another set of ideas which have to do with that of which expertise is a subset, namely knowledge. And the publisher um, was quite flexible and let me pursue that instead. Well, I'm glad your publisher did. So um, 
I want to be humble about making sure that I communicate that I may not have fully understood all the messages in the book, but I want to give a sort of a short synopsis and then have you move forward from there and correct me or expand on it. What I heard in the book was that the digital age is revealing to us that facts, knowledge, expertise, science work differently than we've talked about them working and that our expectations that more information was going to lead us closer to truth and consensus are, are not actually accurate. That our old ways of thinking were broken and it's taken the, uh, the network to show us how they were broken. Is, am I getting close? Yes, very close. I mean, I, um, please continue. Say more. Okay. Finally, that, uh, that, that we're entering into an era, that we believe that we were going to enter into an era of truth and reasoning, and in fact, we're entering into an era in which we're going to discover that the properties of the network define uh, how we hold these conversations and what these uh, fields are like in a way that we didn't necessarily expect. Um, yeah, I mean, so uh, sort of the punchline of the book, um, I think, and and what you, what you're doing a very nice job of synopsizing a book that I have difficulty synopsizing. Um, the punch one of one of the punchlines I think is that um, we we want to understand I think why our institutions of knowledge, which were among the most stable, seemingly anyway, the most stable and revered, well-founded, important, there were bulwarks of knowledge, whether it's encyclopedias or newspapers or libraries or the educational system, um, why these systems uh, and institutions folded up so quickly and easily, why they collapsed. Um, in the course of just 15 years, I just took this one piece of technology, which is the internet, or I think you can actually narrow it and just say the hyperlink, um, knock these things for a, a loop, and many of them are not going to recover. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen to newspapers and old-style encyclopedias. I mean, nobody's going to invest in, in publishing a new paper encyclopedia for at least for a long time. So why did those things turn out to be so much more fragile than we thought when, in fact, we had conceived of them as the very bulwarks of? Um, and the, so the punchline, one of the punchlines of the book, I think, one of the ways of understanding the the book overall is that um, it's because our conception of knowledge for the past 2,500 years, you know, in the West, starting from the ancient Greeks, has been tied in ways that we didn't always recognize. Um, that conception has been tied to its the medium of knowledge, which has been paper, and to the limitations of that medium, which we made ourselves blind to by taking those limitations and um, turning them into um, the, the characteristics of knowledge that we most prize. But in fact, they really, it's a, paper is a very, for all of its strength, is a very limited medium. So we have, I think, in our hearts throughout our history recognized that the system of knowledge that we constructed for ourselves was really quite fragile and inadequate, but we had no alternative. We had no other, we didn't have an Archimedean place to stand to see how fragile and inadequate that old system of knowledge was. And as soon as we got a, a new system and a new place to stand, we, a new medium for knowledge, the internet, then suddenly um, we realized just how ill-founded some of those institutions were and our expectations for those institutions. 
Well, knowing that some of the people listening are not going to have read the book, I'm I'm very aware of sort of the number of hours it took me to kind of grok the message. But part of what I heard is that the limitations of paper-based uh, recording um, led us to have a belief that that the world was simpler or more knowable than it was than it is. Yes, I mean just the very idea of knowability. You know that it is it is the project of knowledge that we set ourselves for 2,500 years. Um, that that is a plausible project, and that we're making good progress on it. Um, that itself has been called into into question, I think, by this new technology. You know, the the old project was that um, we would uh, come up with method methodologies, and in recent centuries, for um, determining what the facts are. Um, we treat those as foundation stones on which we build more and more of a structure of knowledge. We do this across generations. Facts are, and, and contributions to knowledge in general, we have thought are very rare, very careful, have to go through a very careful um, process of being vetted and, and certified. Um, and what you come out with at the end of this process, or increasingly, is a picture of the world that we we are certain we know to be true, to be well-founded. And every element of that has been challenged, I think, of that, of that traditional idea of how knowledge works, works has been challenged by um, what we've seen develop on the internet in the past 15 years, um, including uh, the role of facts, the hope that facts will provide a basis upon which we can all come to agreement. Um, the, the idea that knowledge is um, settled, that to know something is to have it uh, nailed down. So I'm changing metaphors, but you know, to, to nail it down, it's driven, we've driven out all real disagreement and uncertainty. Um, the, each element of that now has been shown to be um, not nearly as, as certain as we once thought. So now, knowledge on the internet um, is uh, we benefit from lots from big big data and lots of knowledge and putting ideas out and uh, date even data out before it's been nailed down and settled and cleaned. Just put it out there. Put up lots and lots of data of all different sorts, numerical data as well as ideas and, and comments and all the rest of it. That turns out to be a really valuable technique for knowledge, publishing first and filtering afterwards. Um, the idea that it, we are going to agree based upon facts, we now know because that, that's not going to happen because we can see that we have lots of facts, lots of supposed facts anyway, and we are not coming to agreement. We can see just how deeply we have always disagreed and the hope that we are going to settle on things is, I think, is one is the hope that generally we have to give up on. At least we're not going to settle on the basis on the basis of facts. The idea that the fundamental unit of knowledge is a fact, well, no, it looks like it's a link. And I mean that in quite literal sense, and we can talk about linked data, perhaps. And uh, finally, although there's a longer list, but um, finally, the idea that knowledge is maybe the most fundamental idea about knowledge in our culture, right from the very beginning, is it's that upon which we settled. It's known, and it's certain, and it's settled. The, the initial definition of knowledge, as many of you know, in our culture comes from Plato, which is its justified true belief. 
And because it's justified, that means we can be certain about it. But it turns out that network knowledge, once knowledge starts to live on the net rather than on paper, that including difference and disagreement of all different sorts in a, in a network of knowledge gives that network more value than the forlorn hope of driving out all difference. So knowledge is in many ways now unsettled, and we're finding a great deal of, of value in that. You know, in reading the book, it was very easy for me to think about the last 10 years and the degree to which, you know, we maybe have had these bright hopes that there was sort of a Star Trek or Vulcan future where there would just be more data, more facts would equal truth. And, and yet in the last 10 years, it's very interesting how we've had some really large-scale societal issues, um, uh, the war on terror or the financial crisis. Um, where you would say, uh, clearly, this is manifesting a lot of the elements that you've described in the book, which is lots and lots of data, but not, not necessarily coming to any kind of agreement. Um, yes. Um, one of, so in some ways, knowledge has always been unsettled. There's always been disagreement about it. Much of that disagreement was hidden from us because the media that we had, whether it's paper or in the modern age, it's you know, the mass media of TV and, and radio, the aperture for um, for content was so small that the dissenting voices, some of which are are valuable dissenters, and many of which are just crackpot crazy people, nevertheless, all those voices were um, kept out marginalized, as we say these days. And so we didn't see just how much disagreement there was. Uh, now we we do see it. And I think we have to just accept the fact that that, that that disagreement is the permanent condition of being of being human. It also turns out that, um, so when we're dealing with big data, um, I think it's pretty well agreed at this point. It is not controversial to say that in the realm of big data, you know, these releases of gigantic data sets, that the data that's being released almost always is, has not been cleaned. Uh, it is known to be to have errors and bugs in it and all the rest of it because you can't. That sort of curation, in fact, curation in general, doesn't scale. If you want to get that much data out. You don't have time or people to go through it all with a fine-tooth comb and make sure that it's all right. But that's okay because in the world of big data, having gobs and gobs and gigantic gobby clouds of unclean data um, gives you the material by which, through advanced computational techniques, you can you can um, get tremendous results. You can study things you didn't even know humans could study. And the errors can be, the errors drop out. I mean, that's oversimplified. But nevertheless, so much value in having dirty data up so long as there's lots and lots and lots of it. And it, it, in a very similar way, uh, I think the same thing has happened um, to, to knowledge. So rather than only releasing, only publishing knowledge when we are confident that we have settled all issues and everybody agrees and we've driven out all disagreement, that doesn't scale. That scales when you have paper, but when you have the opportunity that the net provides, you just it would it would inhibit um, too much. It would imp impose a constraint that we, that hurts us. And so it turns out 
that just as it's better to release lots of data knowing that some of it is wrong, uh, it's buggy, it's also better to have knowledge networks where there are lots of people arguing and some of them are just flat out wrong and some of them have different points of view, that a network like that has more value than the constrained, perfected, or seemingly perfected knowledge, knowledge that would fit through the old filtered, um, curated, uh, peer-reviewed apertures. So we're getting a lot of questions about the, the consequences of this view related to education. And I want to get to that toward the end if it's OK. So I'm going to pause on that. But why don't you give us a little bit of an understanding of how expertise then changes? Uh, so uh, I, the first thing to say is that in some important ways, it doesn't. And I think I actually underplay this in the book. But I haven't read the, you've read the book way more recently than I have. I haven't read it since the last time until we went through copy edit. But it's possible that I underplay the importance of old style, old school expertise. Um, many of us have the, I don't know, the, the deep pleasure of actually getting to work with experts who are just they're amazingly knowledgeable and wise in some area. And it would be insane and disastrous, disastrous to lose that sort of expertise, nor do I think we will. Um, because that seems to me to be sort of a personality trait, and we now have a medium that allows more and more people to become experts in that way. So I'm not particularly worried about losing old school experts. And uh, they are a treasure that we could not afford to lose. Nevertheless. The old idea of expertise, which is a quite modern one, the idea of a professional expert that you go to who has, you know, hangs out her shingle and she knows about stuff, um, that's been under fire for quite a while. And I think the, the web is providing the uh, you know, final nail in the coffin, as they say. So that rather than um, thinking that an expert is I'm sorry, so let me back up for one second. The net is allowing us to change our most basic strategy of knowing. The old strategy with the old media, which was totally appropriate to the old media, um, for about 2,500 years was to uh, face this fundamental fact, which is the world is just gigantically outscales out our poor little brains. You know, our, our, crania, our cranium is very small. Um, so we've always had the problem of, of there just being a superabundance that we couldn't possibly master. And our old response to that was to limit um, what we need to know um, and to create a system of knowledge that consists of stopping points so that you can get an answer, trust the answer, and move on rather than having to repeat the experiment or keep on searching. And this, is, this adds. Um, so much efficiency to the system of knowledge that we have become wildly successful as a species because of it. And one of the elements of this system of knowledge as a set of stopping points was that we allow people to break off a brain-sized chunk of the world and to know it absolutely thoroughly. And those are experts. And experts function to a large degree as stopping points. You ask the expert a question, or you, or you read her book, you get the answer, and you can stop and move on. That as I say, hugely efficient, made us really, really smart. But it's not, and it's the right strategy if you have a very limited medium for knowledge. But when you have a medium that is unlimited, as the internet is, in terms of its connections and its content, the ability to hold content, then it's time to switch strategies, and we have. And so we're seeing in lots of different areas 
um, experts, the experts that we're looking at, rather than trying to find the single best informed person and asking her and, and trusting the answer, um, we're seeing people present expertise as a cloud or more exactly as a network a community, a set of people who are in discussion who don't all agree and who are not going to come up with a single recommendation they can slap down and say, here's your answer, I, I nailed that for you. This sort of cloud of experts has value precisely because of the disagreement. And 20 years ago or 50 years ago, to say that would have been insanity. And now it's not only do I think it's right, I think it actually you know, strikes people as sounding quite reasonable and plausible. The difference in disagreement is in fact a constituent part of knowledge that makes the knowledge better. So you don't say this in the book. These are my words. So I don't want, I don't want, I'm not attributing to you. And if I'm mistaken, you can let me know. But I was intrigued by the degree to which, as individuals, we kind of become hubs or bridges between different worlds. Like if we have 69 people in this room, there are all of these different bridges to different areas of expertise that come together in this one setting, just in the same way that you bring your study of philosophy to these questions of uh, knowledge and the internet. And that felt to me like a really positive, constructive way of thinking about how uh, the, the network is magnifying our ability to think together. I'm sorry for the delay between questions. I'm having mouse trouble of all things, clicking on the, on the talk button. Um, yes. Um, so it's, you certainly did not need the internet. We, our culture did not need the internet to recognize the importance and power of diversity. Um, that's a topic that's been coming up for quite a quite a while, um, and it's it's a really um, good topic. I think, that, uh, and I talk about this bit in, in, bit in the book. I think we've been um, we are frequently confused about the sort of diversity that we need. And I, I use as a reference in the book. Um, a book called The Difference by Scott Page, which talks about exactly that, the, the sorts of difference that makes a group smarter than any of the individuals. Um, but there's, there's another aspect of this that I think is particularly relevant to education, um, which is these, net, these knowledge networks, or what was the phrase, small world networks of, of people who are knowledgeable and engaged around some topic. One of the crucial, because knowledge has always been networked. Um, and I, some reviewers and people talking about it have, about the book have taken me to task on that, saying knowledge has always been a network, which is of course the case. And I, I, it's a, I didn't write the book well enough is what that's, that's saying to me. Of course knowledge has always been networked. Um, it's always come out of the social milieu. Uh, and, and we've always known that. Ben Franklin, there's this great book called, uh, shoot, um, it'll come to me very soon. In any case, um, we have always known knowledge comes out of networks, out of the old republic of letters. It's, but the difference is now is not simply that those networks are available to far more people. That's hugely important, of course. So the old republic of letters was a bunch of highly educated, wealthy um, white men. You know, uh, it's very important that this network has now been opened up so much further. That uh, is crucial. But there's another crucial difference as well, which is knowledge networks enable public learning. We are getting, I very much hope, that the internet generation 
uh, and I don't mean anything in particular by that. People who have been on the internet for a while and who love the internet. Um, we are learning that education can be and should be a public activity, not something that goes on between a teacher and a set of individuals, students who are made better as individuals, but rather that the very act of learning itself should be done in public. And the best example that I know of this is if you watch how software developers these days learn. If you have a question, you're writing a program or whatever, you have a question, you're stuck, you can't figure out how to do something, you Google it and you are taken almost always and almost always instantly, not just to an answer, but to an answer that has arisen from a discussion. So somebody has Somebody else has asked that question before you did. Oh, the math for the odds of you being the first person to ask the question very small at this point. So somebody else has asked it. Somebody has answered it. Somebody else has gone in and fixed that answer and proved it. And they've posted the very code that you need. It's there in public. And so we have here what I think is arguably the, the fastest, the, mo the most rapid learning environment humans have ever created for themselves. The environment, which is really sort of an ecology that software developers have created for themselves. And crucial to this is not only the generosity of people helping each other out and sharing their code, and not only the absolute lack of embarrassment or shame about not knowing something. There's none. You ask. But even perhaps more crucially, the sense that this needs to be done in public so that others will learn from it. This is education that is done in public, and that makes the public sphere smarter for the next person. This, to me, is such an important development that we've seen emerge in this new environment. One of the things I really liked about the diversity chapter was the principle of forking. And I wondered if the creation of Wikipedia's neutral point of view is that an artifact of the old way of thinking about knowledge that we would arrive at a neutral point of view? And is forking actually a sort of a more accurate representation of how we're going to look at things in the future? Wow, so that is such a, <laughs> such a great question. Um, so I bring up forking in the book as a way, as one of the techniques we've developed, which we don't even think about very, is this very natural thing to do, um, to deal with the fact that we are now in an environment in which coming to agreement simply is not a possibility in many cases. But applied to Wikipedia, it becomes a really important point, I think. Because Wikipedia's um, idea of neutrality is admirable and really, in one sense, it really works. Um, I once asked Jimmy Wales about this very thing. And I started, I don't know, asking, pointing out that neutrality was a social construction, blah, blah, blah. And he very politely cut me off. And he said um, something like, you know, I have no interest in French philosophy, which I hadn't even mentioned, but the, I have no interest in that. Um, for me, a, pa a page is neutral when people are not revising it anymore, when people aren't arguing over it which I think is a really wise remark. It doesn't postulate neutrality as some metaphysical ideal. It's, just, it's, where it, there's a, it's an operational definition of neutrality, which I think has enabled Wikipedia to get as far as it can. Having said that, uh, um, the hidden truth about Wikipedia, which you just exposed, is that it, it is, in fact, um, it only exists because of the huge 
homogeneity of the people who are contributing. Um, if and I, that homogeneity doesn't it doesn't have to. I'm not saying that it's all men or it's all affluent. It is a fairly diverse group in terms of those sorts of metrics. But there's such a such a um, strong agreement about um, how you come to re resolution and what some and the the um, importance of evidence and of science. I mean, I agree with this. I'm a sort of good candidate for this this peer group. Uh, if you look at the, for example, just the French Wikipedia, you know, you're still within, you know, sort of the European tradition here. You look at the French version of Wikipedia and you compare articles. A good one to look at is the history of aviation. And it turns out there really isn't all that much agreement between the French and the English version of Wikipedia. It forked invisibly because it's forking between languages. And likewise, people who really fundamentally disagree with the basic rationalist stance that Wikipedia takes, and with which I agree, but who believe that, for example, truth, real truth is faith-based, they don't get any real traction in Wikipedia. And Wikipedia tries to accommodate them, but they cannot accommodate to the degree that these people want. And so they either don't use Wikipedia or they create their own. They create conservapedia or some faith-based version of, of Wikipedia. The forking happens. The, the neutrality that that Wikipedia so admirably strives for, and, and it's, it's you know it's an epically successful attempt. Nevertheless, behind it there is an invisible forking that allows it to succeed. I thought your um, definition of postmodernist thought applied to the topic was really illuminating. We're, we're getting close to our Q&A period, so we can't spend too much time on this. But um, could, can you kind of describe the value of that postmodernist thinking? Yeah, I mean, so so much of what's now happening to knowledge was prefigured in, by the postmodernists when one can understand them, which for me is hardly ever. But there are some core um, beliefs that uh, started out seeming just sort of perverse, and we are now coming, I think, as a culture largely to accept, including the lack of an Archimedean uh, standpoint. Um, the uh, sort of change in, in the metaphysics from thinking that um, knowledge is a way of representing, uh, painting a picture of the world, and that picture can be built bit by bit. The, um, something that I, I don't talk about very much in the book, but the extent to which our ideas of how the world is, that is knowledge, the extent to which that is a, a result of, um, of a power struggle or the exertion of power, um, which I, th I think is quite true. Um, and I guess finally, the idea that, which I think is really important, um, which is that even though it's we cannot come up with a single standpoint from which we can see the real world and all come to agreement. Nevertheless, within different disciplines or discourses, there are deep rules for, uh, deep and intricate rules for um, conversing, for settling issues, for coming to resolution in, uh, in the ways that we have to. Um, within discourses, there are rules and the possibility of being right and wrong. Uh, so we know what it means to come to a decision in a legal case. Scientists know quite well how to resolve different things among them. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, in all the different disciplines, um, there are 
uh, quite well worked out and effective rules for knowledge. So we're not simply cast out into a world uh, to make our way blindly and to make up whatever we want. So we're going to shift the Q&A in about 10 minutes. I'm, I'd like to address two more topics before we do so. And the first would be science. So how is, how is science taking on the properties of the new medium? You know, science is such a, it's so fascinating what's going on in the various sciences. And it does vary by science. So it's a huge, huge topic. I can't, uh, I can't do it justice. I could claim because there's too little time, but in fact, because I don't know enough. But nevertheless, um, one of the, uh, so in science, you can see uh, a move uh, away from peer review. That's not to say uh, nothing gets peer reviewed, not by any means. But there's a recognition that for some types of discourse, um, it's better to have it out immediately unreviewed than to wait for the peer review process. Um, so uh, an easy example of this um, is the faster than light neutrino stuff. And here I'm borrowing an example from a talk that Michael Nielsen gave a couple months ago um, about his new book, which is a wonderful book called uh, Reinventing Discovery. So he points out that this very important um, uh, issue in, in, in physics that arose a few months ago that challenges all of relativity theory, that the original findings um, were posted at a, a site that has zero peer review, archive.org. Just uh, sort of, you know, anybody, any scientist can post anything there um, at any stage of development. Um, sites like these, and archive.org in particular, amazingly, <laughs> just amazing sites, those are unthinkable even a few years ago. Um, the idea that scientists should be allowed to post their unvetted first drafts and that there's, that wouldn't simply be a degradation of science, that idea, you know, even 15 years ago would have been absurd. And now it is a hugely important resource for science. The article about neutrinos was posted there, 80 other articles. Were, that is eight zero. Other articles were posted about it over the course of the next few months. The argument ran across the entire web. Everybody at every level of expertise could join in, find explanations at the right level, and make crazy suggestions or quick suggestions. That web was where the knowledge not only developed, but where it lives even now. None of it was peer review. Peer review is is it has there's some well-known problems with it, but peer review adds value, but it's also very slow. It does not scale. And so quite consciously, this, this question, this huge question, vital question, was they didn't want to wait the year and a half to get it published in a prestigious journal. They posted it. The next day, next minute, the conversation had started. That's how you scale science. And you lose some things when you do it that way. But the gain in every direction is so immense. So many more people at every level can participate. So much more of the public can engage than in the old days where a year and a half later when the article gets published in the scientific journal and maybe the New York Times picks up on it and they run an article and you don't understand enough to understand that article and you are out of luck. That's how it used to work. The gain that we get by networking through the networking of science is so immense and so transformative. And the, uh, very quickly, the only other thing that I would say is I think one of the ways of looking at what's happening in science now is that science, without intending to, 
um, because the medium was paper, science itself adopted a publishing model as the way that you do science. But you work in in small group in private. You then publish your results, at which point you get credit for them. That's how publishing works. It's also how science has worked, and we're seeing that model fall apart in many of the sciences now. And I think overall, to a tremendous benefit. I'm not doing justice to the 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 detail of that chapter um, by picking out one more item. But for me, it was also very interesting to think about uh, how the net uh, can counterbalance the profit motive and how things that maybe didn't have a justification for getting researched are getting more attention than they did before. Is that accurate? Yes. And I should point out that there has been really great news yesterday in, in the open access field. Um, where there was an, there was actually, so there was, there's been a movement that if you get federal funding, you should be required to release your publisher results in the uh, open access form so that the public gets full benefit from it. Everybody can benefit from it. Um, there was a bill that was going through Congress that would have prevented that requirement. Um, and Elsevier withdrew support from it yesterday morning, and the sponsoring Congress people withdrew their support for it in the afternoon. And so this, from my point of view, amazingly regressive, unthinkable legislation that would keep federally funded research from being put into the public sphere. That bill died yesterday, a, a death that was none too early. In several places in the book, I actually wrote the word democracy. And I was kind of intrigued to, to go back and sort of think about why that kept coming to mind for me. And I think it came to mind because uh, it, it was a recognition of the social aspects of conversation and the importance of talking together and working things out, and also the degree to which democracy, the way we use that phrase, often respects uh, local decision making that aggregates to a larger whole. Is there a good um, connection between that that concept of democracy and some of what you're describing? Did I lose you, David? I have to press the button, I think. Um, yeah, no, I think there is that relationship, and I think you've hit upon the, the key elements of it, and you have very carefully, carefully and consciously swerved around the mistaken thing that many people would hear if they heard knowledge referred to the democratizing of knowledge. I think what a lot of people would hear without they didn't have further explanation is, oh, we're putting up we're putting truth up for a vote. And that, you know, in important ways, though, no, you can't do that. <laughs> you know, the, the world is one way and it's not other ways. And voting doesn't make it so. Um, the democratizing of knowledge in its best sense has nothing to do with that. The struggle for knowledge will always be against um, the temptation to believe that what everybody believes must be right. That's, I think that's a continuing element in the adventure of knowledge that our species has been on. That it is possible for one person to be right and everybody else to be wrong. But the elements, the values of knowledge, excuse me, of democracy, um, rather than the mechanisms of it, the values of democracy, I think, are profoundly in line with what's been going on with knowledge. Um, because, from my point of view, the most basic 
value of democracy is the recognition that we all have interests, that, we, that the world matters to every one of us and it matters differently. And there is value in each of our idea of how the world matters to us. Um, it, political democracy then provides mechanisms for trying to negotiate among all of those different uh, that, those different ways and different ideas about what counts. I, it, my hope is that the that the internet concept of knowledge has is adopting the same value. That is, that it's a recognition that it's not sort of this one-to-one -one relationship. I know the world in some objective way, but that we each know the world in ways that the world discloses itself to us in ways um, based upon what matters to us, and that knowledge is a form of negotiation among those different uh, ideas. For me, that and you use the word playlist in the book, that our individual and unique playlists, to me, is an argument for an education that encourages us to participate. What other conclusions would you draw from your work with regard to education? Um, well, you know, from my point of view, I the very easiest thing is that I really hope that we start educating our children as if the internet is going to be where they find, develop, and love knowledge. That we want them to go out on the internet. Um, the internet is the greatest infrastructure for human curiosity ever. I mean, it shows us that the, the world is far more interesting than our media and, I hesitate to say, our textbooks ever let on. That's, for me, the, great, the greatest joy of the internet. Um, and I believe our educational system is coming around to that, but still frequently, I'm afraid, um, treats the internet as primarily a swamp of bad information, which of course it is, but it's also a swamp of all the, the joy of education and knowledge as, as well. So um, educating our children from the very beginning, assuming they're going to be going out onto the internet for all, virtually all of their information and knowledge work and helping them to understand what is reasonable and reliable and what isn't. Um, so that's one thing. Very quickly, other things are um, we now see the power of collaboration, including uh, of education, and learning how to educate for and with collaboration is not easy. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, um, thinking about education and learning as public acts, not as private, private in some sense, selfish acts, but seeing how much of our learning, learning we can do in public as a way of improving the public. And that, I think that's a hugely important lesson to teach our children, or in this case, in this situation, to learn from our children. So we're going to move to Q&A. If you've asked a question in the chat, I apologize. There's been so much that I haven't been able to follow it. You can put the question in the chat again, or you can raise your hand, as Kathy has done, which is the third icon over in the participant window. And um, so I'm going to give Kathy the mic and then Dean the mic, and I'll take questions uh, in the chat as well. So Kathy, I've given you microphone privileges to turn your mic on, click the talk button at the top left. Okay, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Yeah. Oh, great. Um, well, I I read your book, David, and uh, really carefully, and I loved it. Um, there was one sentence that I didn't understand, and that's that 
knowledge is becoming a property of the network, and I wasn't really sure what sense you meant in what sense that you meant that. That's my question. So it's possible that I miswrote it, but what I meant, I believe, was that knowledge is taking on the taking on the properties of the network, which is in fact the organizing principle for the book. Once I get past the couple historical uh, opening chapters, so um, the argument of the book overall is that traditional knowledge has had the properties of its medium of paper. Um, including the limitations of paper, which we took as being, in fact, good things about knowledge. And now it's taking on, uh, because I'm a good McLuhanite in this sense, it's taking on the properties of its new medium. So let's look at some of those properties and see how, if and how, they're affecting knowledge. So that's what I meant to say. I don't remember saying the thing that puzzled you, and if I did, it puzzles me at least as much as it puzzles you. <laughs> a good answer. Okay, Shannon, uh, let's see. Now Sharon wants to know, what's your opinion of Waldorf education? You know Waldorf education, educators are dogmatically opposed to technology. Do you feel like you have an answer to that? Um, no, I, in fact, I, I, in the chat I pointed out, um, I don't know enough about it. We sent our, our three children went through conventional public schools. Um, and when I talk with Waldorf parents, there are lots of things that um, they tell me where I nod vigorously. And, yeah, you know, especially these days as the schools are teaching more to the tests. Um, but I don't, don't know enough about Waldorf to have an opinion. Um, I do know that a whole bunch of my very technical friends, I mentioned Doc Searles as a friend and co-author, they are very committed and very enthusiastic about Waldorf. So don't, it's a long way of saying, I don't know. You know it sounds really interesting, but I don't know. I'm sorry I missed that response in the chat. Dean, you have the mic. Uh, hi, everyone. And hi, Dave. Thanks for uh, taking time to chat with us here. Uh, just an issue that's really been on my mind lately around this whole idea of diversity and civil discourse. I loved how you sort of unpacked all the nuances around that. But the, the thing that struck me is you used the example of Jay Rosen and, and um, and particularly a, a phrase about the thoughtful responses that he had on, you know, fairly, um, you know, controversial subjects around uh, journalism and objectivity. But I guess I'm wondering about where, where do you see the, the 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 places or spaces for that kind of rich civil discourse to happen? And I, I'm sure it lies somewhere in what you talked about this balance of of the right kind of diversity. But I guess what I look at is I see mainstream news sites that will post, you know, a controversial article, and I mean, you you don't even have to know <laughs> to start reading through the comments to know that it's, it's going to be a useless space um, for any kind of intelligent uh, conversation around around what you know is is, is a, obviously a very interesting topic, whatever it may be. Uh, is it just simply that we're all we're just going to continue to see a shift to places like blogs where there's a there seems to be the right mix of diversity, or is there a way for these other kinds of mainstream sites where you know a large part of the public really you know spends a lot of their time? Is there anything that they can do to sort of encourage a better um, mix of responses or or a better discourse? Yeah. Um. So uh, there's obviously a lot of Yahooism 
on the net. That's not news to anybody. And we all know sites that are just, you know, the comments threads make you sorry to be human. You know, we just want to change species. But we also all know sites where that's not the case. And so there is apparently, there are apparently ways of doing that. And I think it, the, our first reaction to a terrible site that's bringing out the worst in human beings is to ask ourselves, um, well, how could that be engineered better? Because apparently there are ways. Or there seem to be ways we can do that. And I hope and assume that over time those will get more and more codified. We'll get better at doing it. We'll be better at the sort of social uh, social engineering is a bad phrase, isn't it? The, the engineering of these social spaces. Um, it's often a very, unfortunately, it's often a very tiny thing that determines the direction that a, a space takes in terms of civility. Um, so there's some things that I think we already know how to do, uh, which is, uh, for example, have a policy stated at the beginning and frequently to moderate. The moderation is, uh, we should not be afraid of moderation, you know, depending on the sort of site. So the White House cannot moderate because banning, uh, removing comments is a matter of free speech. And so they're in a tough spot. But most of us aren't the White House. And if we want to have a civil conversation on our site, then we can moderate in all the different ways that we can moderate. We can self-moderate. We can allow the crowd to moderate. There are a million different techniques. Um, I, these days, I'm really fascinated by Reddit. R-E-D-D-I-T.com, which suddenly in the past couple of months has become way more prominent, which makes me very happy. For me, it's an example of many interesting things. And if you, so if you now go to Reddit this very minute, Lord knows, it's very likely there's going to be, it's, I'm sorry, it's a site where people can uh, post a link and the links get loaded up or down, and then there's uh, huge amounts of um, conversation around the links. So if you go there now, you're going to probably wonder why I like the site, because very likely there's a bunch of cat photos. There may be a not safe for work um, you know, discussion of some sort that may be objectionable. They may be obsessing for the moment about, um, about boobs. Yes, I said boobs, uh, which is one of their, basically the demographic seems to be primarily, certainly not only, but uh, primarily young men. Um, the, or atheism, another big topic in the life. But in the mix of this, you'll also find very serious discussion and very learned discussion that in every case is beyond civil. It's actually amazingly supportive um, because they have, for one reason or another, they, have, they view themselves as this huge community of warm-hearted people who will go out of their way to, well, be supportive. Um, to help somebody who needs help, to say the kind word, it's and to be to engage in uh, um, rapid uh, community discussion, usually very short uh, messages, you know, a line or two, sort of tweet length, that will develop an idea, take it down a path of sometimes hilarious humor and banter, and bring it back and get both knowledgeable and touching about it. It, it, this sort of thing can happen. It happens all over the net. And the fact that there are bunches of sites, you know, YouTube comments are famous for this, um, that are just unpleasant. Yeah, that's right. But that's a failure of the software, frankly. It's a failure of the engineering of the sociology. David, am I right in remembering in the book you also talk about 
the value of um, I want to say having a hand in things or mixing things that there is uh, an art here. I'm sorry that there's an art, an ART, an, an art. Yeah, in correct, an art in in helping discussions be civil. Um, well, certainly a skill. It may well be an art as well. But yeah, some people are good at it, and some people aren't. And people who are good at it, sometimes they're put in positions as moderators, or sometimes they just have strong social skills. And if they're on a message board or in a message thread of some sort, they'll intervene, and often quite usefully. So that's a pretty valuable skill on and off the web. I'm kind of interested in the degree to which some of these things seem to come together. I mean, the the ability to recognize um, the social aspects of these interactions, you know, requiring somebody with some skill to do so, um, maybe the value of teaching at kind of a meta level about the web and uh, or the internet and its impact on knowledge. It feels as though part of our job is to be consciously aware at that meta level of what's taking place in order to use the tools well? Yes, but keep in mind, at least from my point of view, that maybe the most important thing that's going on is that we are getting, we're, I hope, moving up a meta level in our understanding of knowledge. That the, sort of, the caricature, which I'll, you know, in the interest of time, I'm going to stick with the caricature of old style knowledge is that an authority stated it. Uh, he, and he was a he in this character, was, is wearing a white lab coat, says something, and so you think it's true. In fact, you're even willing to turn up the shock dial to, <laughs> to shock the person in the other room because the authority told you. That's the, and there's truth in that caricature. It's over There's truth there. Um, the caricature of, the, of what's happening on the Internet is that as the old authorities, the old settled authorities are no longer um, as reliable, as we don't trust the um, old encyclopedias as much, or the old newspaper. Very few people think that newspapers now are 100% reliable and all you need to read. That, in fact, we are learning that knowledge is not something that is an object in the world that we can just pick up and now we have it and we're done and put it in our pocket and now we can get paid for having it in our pocket. That knowledge isn't like that. That knowledge is something that is fully human which means that it's never certain, that it's always social, that it's always imperfect, and that to engage in the pursuit of knowledge is to recognize that, which means being aware of the fallibility of knowledge and thus how knowledge can be authenticated as well as we can. And so, yeah, moving up that meta level, I hope and I think the single most important um, the thing that step that we are taking in the evolution of knowledge in the Internet Page. Fascinating. So David, as a courtesy to our guests, we do end on time. Uh, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, ben, I'm sorry that we're not going to get to your question a couple more that were in the chat. Um, but David, really, I love the book. And from the notices I saw in the chat, there were many others who felt like this was really a significant um, read for them. So thank you so much, both for the book and for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me and for the uh, for the chat and for the questions. This was delightful. So our guest has been David Weinberger. The book is Too Big to Know. Please go buy it if you haven't already. Uh, fascinating read. Um, one of the most interesting books I've read in quite a long time. Coming up on the Future Education on March 12th is Mimi Ito and Kathy Davidson and David Warwick after that. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Thanks, David. Have a great night or a day, depending on where you are. Bye for now.